One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. My guest today is Ben Bailey-Smith, aka Doc Brown. Doc's achievements are vast and varied. Starting out as a British rapper at the dawn of the British grime scene, Doc went on to do stand-up comedy where he performed at world-famous venues like Live at the Apollo, as well as appearing in The Inbetweeners and working with Ricky Gervais on classic sketches like Equality Street and the film Derek. Doc also has a successful acting career, appearing in a number of hit TV shows, including Midsummer Murders, Law and Order and Brief Encounters, among others. As if that wasn't enough, this polymath of epic proportions has also casually hosted the BAFTAs, written and performed in a number of cult classic children's shows, and has somehow managed to raise two, no doubt, wonderful girls, which have been the catalyst for a number of Doc's more charitable endeavours, including being the face of Great Men, a charity which looks to educate young men about the negative effects of gender stereotyping. Uh, Finally, in a bid to return to his roots and solidify his position as one of the greats of UK rap, Doc recently released a new album called Stemmer, a success among hardcore rap fans of today and yesteryear. Doc coincided the release of the album with a UK tour that has been packing out arenas ever since. Doc, Ben, welcome to the show. How are you? That's crazy. (laughs) A mouthful. mouthful. That makes me feel like I've actually done something with my life. That's incredible. Yeah, well, (laughs) believe me, that's the longest intro we've had by a country mile. Um, Nice. We briefly spoke about it already, but for those listening, just to kind of bring you into where you're at now, mm. how's the tour been? Uh, which which one? Which the, the, one? We, the, the, we referenced the, the, a few yeah, in there. Well, the, mu- the music. The gigs. music. Yeah. yeah so it, I did just did a handful in uh, in March and April, uh, and I'm going to do another handful um, in November and December this year. And when does this go out? Uh, this will go out in a couple of weeks. So okay, pe- so, so yeah, a couple of weeks from tickets. when you're hearing this, uh, I'm sure there'll still be tickets. Because you know what, like, no one really wants to see me rap. I'm just doing it for fun. So there'll, there'll be plenty of tickets at, at most of the venues. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those things I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, I'm not trying to compete with, like, gigs and Skepta and, and all the big rappers that are out now. Um I just love doing it, man. And and 15 years ago, it's all I wanted to do. And then everything changed. And now it's 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 more something that I still am desperate to do, but I know there's not a career in it for me. I can't start rapping <laughs> at my age. So <laughs> Going right back to when you started, there was something that I thought was really intriguing, which was that basically you used to throw topics at each other and mm. that's how you would develop your skills. It, well, is that how you developed your skills in rap? Is it that you um, throw topics at one another? I'd say that's a that's a part of it. I mean, the, rap is is kind of DIY, you know. It's, it's, it's very much the sort of the do-it-yourself area of, of the world of music in that you don't necessarily need to learn an instrument, you know, you don't necessarily need to study music. But um, the thing that sets the good rappers apart from the whack ones is usually that they they do have some experience in in formal 
music, even if that's just that they've grown up with a range of music from their parents. So, but either way, you know, you can just start beatboxing, you can just start rapping, you can just start DJing, you can have a go at it. You're not going to be good, but you can have a go in this, in 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 a way that you can't just have a go at certain instruments. Like if you've ever tried to have a go at playing a trumpet, it's not a pretty sight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for you sure. You need some technique before you even have your first lesson. So, um, yeah, that DIY element means that um, they'd all, there was from the start there was an improvisational um, side to rap, um, and and that came out in 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 the world of freestyle, which I think was probably born out of guys just taking the mick out of each other you know like just having something cutting to say and if that can rhyme as well then it's immediately funny so um i actually had a question on this because i mean you started out in a kind of battle rap scene and you you were mm. part of this group called uh, the poison poisonous poets yeah um and with among the ba- battle rap scene you've got uh the guys up north that do the don't don't flop stuff, mm-hmm. and you've had people like yourself, but you've also had uh, Professor Green and Luna C. Yep, and these people who are, they're really funny, and mm-hmm. it seems to be that actually in the battle rap scene, that actually having a, a humorous side of you it yeah. helps you to elevate. No, no doubt, and I don't think it's any coincidence that I ended up getting into comedy because I had the the sort of education for that through the battle scene because when I was doing it you know not everybody was funny it was still largely about being slick and being quite hard and I definitely had both of those to some extent but probably not as much as everybody else so I always thought like to be self-deprecating or to take the piss out of myself a little bit would add even more fuel to the fire when I took the piss out of you do you know what I'm saying? So um, comedy was always a, a weapon for me from the start and I sort of moved out of there into like hosting events and I just got kind of known as a sort of master of ceremonies in the, in the old school sense of the word, just somebody who could walk into a room of strangers and make everybody feel like they were welcome and have a good time, and but in quite tense atmospheres. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you can see how that really paved the way for me to be able to approach stand-up and not be terrified. Yeah. You, the people that you were with in that group, there was some of the names that I'm more familiar with, like Loki mm. and there was uh, Tony D. Those guys are... The humour isn't necessarily like a huge part of uh, their get-up. How did you guys meet and how did how did that come about? Well, it's, it's funny because, you know, you'd be amazed in, in terms of hardcore rappers who, like how many of them behind the scenes are very funny and humor is a huge huge um kind of currency for them but they don't shouldn't necessarily show it in their music so tony for a start he's one of the funniest people i've ever known and he's he's definitely employed some of that in in terms of his um his his battle uh uh, experience loki was also someone with a sense of humor but in, in terms of the songs that he made, obviously, and is, is still making. They're very like, highly politically charged. But yeah, in, in, long story short, in the old days, like you just you met other rappers because the world just wasn't that big. So yeah. anybody who was out of my era, from like two thousand to I'd say all the way up to like oh six, oh seven, if you were rapping, and I knew you. Do you know what I mean? Like because the, the world was small. There was this amazing video of. 
basically all the kind of grime rappers all in a like a garage somewhere with with a microphone all rapping together mm. it was like dizzy rascal in there and i think wiley and kano mm. um and those people all kind of blew up to some degree and mm. uh, i think retch was in there mm-hmm. or, but it, that scene it seemed to be like a like a a pocket of of talent that, yeah. that emerged does a part of you ever you were uh, like you know massively part of that and all those people went on to be like relative stars within mm-hmm. within that niche do you ever kind of regret moving into the entertainment scene as opposed to sticking it out with the rap um I was about to say, I didn't realise that's where the question was going to turn because I was about to right. say, do, I thought you were going to say, do you ever regret like not not like making it as a, as a rapper? And, and absolutely, unequivocally, yes, I would have loved to have done that. But when you say regret going into the scene that I went into, like not at all because it broadened my spectrum and I think it's already sowed the seeds for me to be working and, and, and making a living from show business for the rest of my life yeah whereas if i was getting to the end of my 30s now and i was still rapping i just i don't know yeah yeah like if that's all i had i'd just be i'd be really panicked every every day another dope young like 19 year old rapper came out i'd be worried whereas now like i'd say probably the perfect 2017 version of me is is loyal kana you know and i can just welcome the the existence of loyal Kana into my world with open arms and with no feeling of like, Oh, I wish that was me or, Oh God, this is, this is competition for me. Do you know what I mean? As soon as he popped up, I was like, Oh, this is, this is the rap that I would have loved to have made when I was his age. Do you know what I'm saying? But he's doing his thing now, but I'm doing my thing now and there's no competition. So the first thing to do was holler at him and go, you know what, bruv, this, this stuff's amazing. And it was, and full credit to him, he got back to me, and now you know I, his last show at um, Brixton, he invited me to come and 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 stand at the side of the stage and watch the show, and it was, it was just a real sort of torch bearing moment. Do you know what I'm saying? I just thought that's nice that you got that recognition. At the same time, I just thought this is why my regrets are there, but minimal. Yeah, because I've 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 moved on. If I was if I was competing with him with the Stemmer album, for example, I just would have thought, ah, oh. yeah, <laughs> Do you you, know what you, mean? You, I'm like, you, you, I'm useless. You've said in the past that you you don't want to com- compete with the people that are there today because you no, have really you have don't. completely different. Uh, I really don't, and I also want to see him shine. Like it, for me, the 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 torchbearer thing is meaningful, man. Like rap is one of those genres that doesn't get as heavily documented as others. So it's important that we document it amongst ourselves. And the people that know, know, and that's great. But it would be nice sometimes for people outside the world to know that your favourite 17-year-old rapper in 2017 didn't just appear fully formed. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He learned from something that his brothers were listening to or maybe an older rapper that he knew. Do you know what I'm saying? And before that and before that. But we don't really respect our elders in rap, which is a separate issue. Yeah, it's a funny one. <laughs> you, you, you've, you've said that um, basically if you want to expand your mind, there's certain rappers you should listen to. That's, yes. And just for people listening, who are, the, who are those people that come to mind for you? Well, I mean, at the moment I listen to more British guys than I think I ever have in, in my life. Um, which is testament to some of the talent that's out there now. And um, the range of stuff that I listen to is is very, very wide. But I think the thing that connects them all is there's a depth of intelligence 
within them that is hint either hinted upon vaguely within their lyrics or is just totally like out there for everyone to see. And those people, I would say, Loyal Connor, I've already mentioned. I would also include Giggs and Stormzy in that. And I would also include Wretch, 32. Um, and uh, probably Ocean Wisdom. Um, there's there's a handful that, like, they move me when they when they rap, you know? There's something else going on other than just the bars or just the hook or the, who they've got featuring on it. There's something else happening. And um, those guys, I say, they're, they're a constant inspiration, not just in terms of rap, but in terms of creativity as a whole. Something I wanted to get your opinion on, and mm. it's basically about this idea of selling out, because I know that mm -hmm. there's been a number of rappers, and the one which most notably comes to mind was Chipmunk, okay. because he used to you know, rap and people respected him, I believe. I'm not in the scene, obviously, but... Mm. Uh, for his rapping capabilities, and then he brought out a bunch of pop tracks, mm -hmm. which, you know, the whole the whole thing is about, or a lot of the lyrics are around how you want to go and make money, and then it was almost like when people did that sellout move in order to make the cash, there was a massive backlash upon them, like you should have stayed true to your essence. But what's your stance on that? I mean, do you think if young rappers have the opportunity to make a hit record that sells those... Should they or should they stick to doing what they do best? I think they should do what they enjoy. And uh, I think if Chipmunk enjoyed doing those songs and they made him money at the same time, then more more power to him. I would, like, I would never... I, I, would, I would accuse a rapper of making a whack song, but I would never accuse them of selling out because I just don't... I don't buy into that concept. I, I just don't believe in it. Like, if... If you've never been able to make a living and then suddenly you, you're making a living doing the, the one outlandish talent that everybody's told you you can't make a living from, I don't really care. Like, if your output is, is weak, then, you know, as a fan, you just don't listen. But yeah. if there's millions of other people buying it and that guy's making money, fair play. And to, to be angry about it, I think, is like a little bit... It's just a little bit small-minded because what is selling out? Like, I just don't really understand it. Like, surely everybody wants to be financially uh, recuperated for excelling at something that they claim to do well, right? Um, so I would say, you know, if you're making songs that you enjoy and people are paying you hundreds of thousands to, to do it or in one shape or or form you're making hundreds of thousands from it then fair play do you know what i'm saying and um in in rap it this thing this idea of selling out is constantly thrown at us and i think it's because people find it really hard to marry the fact that most of us come from a working class background with mass success so there's always something being thrown at us and when I say us, yes, I include Chipmunk in that because even if there's rappers that I, I'm not a particular fan of, if they're rappers, I feel like they're part of my community and I would rather back them until they do something so unbelievably unforgivable <laughs> that I have to turn my back. Do you know what I'm saying? There was people back in the day, there was a really funny guy uh, that I used to listen to called Skinny Man yeah. and he was a... Older guy, and I have no idea what what he's doing these days, or if he's if he's still in on the scene. But I was just curious to know if there was people that you kind of go, oh, I wonder where they are, or I wish they'd make a return. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of us old, older statesmen who, I mean, Skinny was the generation before me, even, you know, with, with the likes of Rodney P and Black Twang, the, you know, the, the guys that I really looked up to as a kid. Um, but th there's a bunch of us who have moved on with our lives and still stay in touch. So there's a lot of people that people say, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so? And I say, oh, well, he's a personal trainer now. <laughs> or he's this, that. <laughs> still in touch, do you know what I mean? Because it was yeah. a strong community. And actually, um, Skinny Man still does his thing. You know, he's doing shows as recent as a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, he's one of the real characters of the scene that I came up in in the early 2000s because... He was like a bona fide superstar, but of, you know, a, a tiny, tiny world that proved to be too small to harbour any of us with any kind of realistic uh, career or, or even like realistic goals in, on an individual level. I mean, he had a lyric on his album where he said, um, nobody in this British rap game is making it. Couldn't get my mum off the council estate with it. So I'll be in the park shotting weed, catch me later. Shit, that's how you ended the verse. And it was so real, you know, like everyone was just like, rah, he's our biggest guy. <laughs> yeah. And he can't make a living. So One, yeah. one, one of my favourite tracks is, uh, it's not on any of his albums, but it was Kano's Layer Cake. Okay. And it just, it was, it was that exact thing. It was his very honest opinion of how he was never going to make it up against. Yeah. Um, indie bands in the UK and that mm. kind of thing and all the bureaucracy he was having to fight against in order yeah. to get his stuff through. I should, I should shout out Kano as well as, as one of those individuals that moves me. I think he's an intensely, incredibly intelligent young guy with um, just an amazing level of output. And you know what else? The grime guys, you talk about skinny, like talking about how we're never going to make it. We, we all felt like that. The grime guys taught us how to be rappers again, you know? taught us how to go actually forget all that i'm the man they 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 retaught us you know so do you define yourself differently from grime yeah i'm i i it, if i was to call myself a grime mc grime would laugh at me do you know what i'm saying i've got nothing but love for grime because it reanimated the art form that i love which yeah. is hip-hop it not only reanimated it it redesigned it and repositioned it so that it was 100 percent british and that was my dream as a kid because I felt like I was putting a British slant on something that was 100% American. Yeah, I was going to say... Which I always felt was putting a round peg in a square hole, whereas the grime guys, they were just like, nah, the whole thing's British. The beats, the, the style of rap, what we're talking about, everything is going to be 100% UK. And they revived the scene. We were dead on our feet. So uh, there's no question I, I'm like a a rap artist like a, of the hip hop mold I was, but I do not separate myself from the world of grime because I think they reinvigorated hip hop yeah. just gave it a new name because it was like you know it's more like garage type MCs and now you listen to the so called grime artists they're making rap man they're making rap music yeah well, I remember when I was listening to the Poisons Poet stuff I, I was thinking to myself I wasn't sure which artist it was but I mean I used to listen to Gangstar and Nas and, mm. and um, you know, like all that scene, uh, the, Ameri the American kind of legends. And I was like, this reminds me more of that than it, than the British, the British rap of today, but obviously it moulded through those years. Yeah, most definitely. And now you hear 
grime artists rapping in that kind of two-step, quite fast style on top of beats that will remind you of like trap music from the States. So it's just like all the barriers have been knocked down now, man. Like anyone can do anything. Do you know what I'm saying? Having made a serious dint in the underground battle rap scene, Doc later got an opportunity to work with the BBC, where he was advised to try stand-up comedy. Fast forward just a few years and he'd found his niche combining his years of experience in rapping combined with comedy to create a unique proposition that saw a number of opportunities open up. As someone who's had amazing experiences working on shows like The Inbetweeners and with Ricky Gervais, as well as doing spots on TV and at venues like Live at the Apollo, I thought it only fitting that I try and unlock some insights from his time in comedy. You started comedy after a suggestion from someone at the BBC. Mm. And at that time, you were making this career transition. I just wonder what your the reception was from your peers uh, from, from the rap scene. Uh, largely disbelief, you know. But then that was the same from friends and, and family. It's just like, what do you know about this? And I was like, well, I don't know that I know anything. But I just feel comfortable. Um, you know, it's easy now to look back on my life and realize where the influences and inspirations and experiences came from in order for me to be good in two completely different disciplines. I can see it now, but at the time you're really, you're just dipping your toe in the water and you don't, you don't know and you don't have that confidence because there's guys around you who have been doing it for 20, 25 years within a, within a year, less than 12 months of, of, dipping my toe in comedy, I was gigging alongside some of the biggest names in the game. Do you know what I mean? So, so how did that happen? What was the breakthrough moment? I don't really know. I, feel, I don't know if there was like a moment. I just attacked it with the confidence of a rapper and you don't see that in comedy terms. You don't see that from newbies. They just they, It just doesn't happen. You don't get a, a new youngster on the scene who's just like, bang, I'm a headline artist. There's, there's and that's how I felt. There's something really amazing. So I'm someone who's not overly into music, but I, I, I love the rap scene on the basis that I'm more into kind of business and entrepreneurial stuff. Mm. And there's no other scene like the rap scene for people that are just hustling and yeah. making shit happen. With, D, with DIY guys, you know, uh, the the very first thing, just speaking like in terms of like, biz, business-wise, the first thing I remember in, in, in the, the comedy scene when I started getting paid gigs um, and they were, you know, ridiculous amounts of money. I'm talking about not enough money to cover the petrol and the hotel, you know, so you were essentially paying to gig, right? Um, those days, you know, I was always being a dick about the money. I was always like, make sure like I, like, I want my money, I want my money. And I, I was amazed by other comics who just like, they'd laugh and joke about how they were getting paid late or they sent an invoice. They asked it for to be 14 days and they're waiting for six months. I mean, there is one company who I wouldn't dream of naming on air, but they are huge and they would hold on to your checks for so long that you'd sometimes forget about them and comics would joke about it. Oh, I still haven't been paid by so-and-so. And I'd just be like, what? I'd be sat in that green room going, why are you joking about it? Like, you've done your job. So did you always get paid? 
I always got paid on time, but it was because I kicked up a stink about it. Right. So that people would be like, oh, you better not hold on to Doc's check. You better send that out because he's <laughs> going to be a dick about it. In the same way that I was with just negotiating fees early on, because I was going into venues, again, having grown up on the rap scene, I was going into comedy venues where I'd look at the venue and think, okay, there's 600 seats. I look at the ticket price and it's 28 pounds a ticket, right? And there's three comics on the bill and a host. And we're getting £100 each. I don't need to be a mathematician (laughs) to work out that someone's getting a sweet deal out of this. And you're looking at the venue and thinking, right, I remember hiring nightclubs, which really are expensive because of the additional insurance and the worry about the type of people, in inverted commas, who like rap music, you know. So you know there's going to be some costs incurred there. But I'm looking at these knackered old like art centres and community centres and and small theatres and I'm thinking what deal really have the promoters got with this this venue maybe they've just got a little bar split do you know what I mean maybe they've agreed that the venue gets a, a couple of quid out of each ticket or maybe they've just said to the venue you know what could we hire your venue I'll give you 250 quid can I hire your venue yeah no problem Monday night yeah fine don't care if it's Monday night, it's comedy. Comedy doesn't have a night like music does, do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't need to be a Saturday night. No one cares. People will go and sit and watch comedy. So yeah, you get a 600-seater for 250 quid. Venue's like, yeah, we got 250 quid cash. Suddenly you're charging £28.50 for a ticket for free comics and all you have to pay them is 100 quid each and you'd have to pay for their travel, their board, nothing. Like, you are laughing. And then you've got tens of thousands of pounds coming into your business every couple of days and some comic build you for a hundred pounds so what was, like, yeah. what was your conversation with them then what did you <laughs> it was pretty frank uh, so i've worked <laughs> this out you're fucking me it was pretty frank um i was just like i just kind of knew my worth i knew i wasn't the best comic in the world but i also knew if you're going to ask me to go to stafford when i live in london and it's going to cost me like £70 in petrol and £120 on, you know, laterooms.com. And then I've got to get myself fed and whatnot. Like I'm paying nearly £200 for the pleasure of performing for you, you know? Yeah. And, and you're going to pay me £100? No, that just doesn't make sense. So I was just as consistent as I could be on stage to the point where I had promoters, um, you know, asking for me and there was double bookings coming up. And at that point, as soon as those people that was like, I want you Friday night, and then someone else would be like, I want you Friday night, I'd be like, well, this guy's just offered me £150 to do Friday night, and you're still paying £100. Maybe Then the game changed, you know? As soon as I started saying no to stuff, the game changed. And people were like, it's going to be harder to get Doc. Either A, because he's asking for more money, or B, because he's a dick about... Um, the invoices you know <laughs> I had a, I had a bad a baby daughter you know I was like this has to work this it, has to work I'm not like some guy who's got his feet up living in his parents house doing comedy because like oh it's just a laugh I was all I'm already a washed up entertainer at this point this is a huge gamble for me you know so I was very I was as trying to be as funny as I could be on stage and I was deadly serious off of it this is a potentially a, a silly question, but I just think it's something that a lot of people struggle with. 
And it's when you've got a big occasion the day after and then you need to go to sleep, but then you've got to get up the next day and, and really perform. Mm. You know, the day when you're walking out live on, the, live on the Apollo, do you sleep like a baby the night before? or, or? No, I, I can't relax before the, the big gigs at all. Normally it's the day, but in really bad cases, the day before as well is, is a write-off because I'm just thinking too deeply about it. You know, I've just finished a world tour with Ricky Gervais where the smallest crowd I probably played to was maybe 4,000, 4,000 people. And I can't remember being very nervous at all at any of those gigs. Maybe the first couple where I was just find, finding my feet. The rest of them, I was just like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. It's, it's fine. Whereas you could put me in the same venue and say, right, this is your one-off comedy performance um, for the BBC, it's going to get streamed by millions of people. You know, you've you got 20 minutes to get this right. All of a sudden, I'm in my own head thinking, this is really important. I've got to be this amount of funny. I'm putting pressure on every single joke, everything I say. And you see me and I'm not 100%, I'm not as good as I was the night before. That's something that I think people just completely disregard is that these, when, you know, people are people, they're not... Uh, Whilst they are superstars, feasibly they're not. Uh, they're still people at the end of the day, and you have of to course. get up and, and perform. Of course. Um, is there ever been a time when that's been debilitating for you, or have you just gone? Do you know what? And just fought yeah, through. Yeah, no, I struggled with it for years. Um, I would say from uh, sort of middle of 2013, right the way up to probably 2016, I had. Uh, debilitating levels of 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 um like a, a lack of self-belief um a, a worry about where i was going with my career what it what it means to achieve fame um the responsibilities that i had so many things were playing on my mind during those years i found entertainment a very 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 difficult world to be in because I think in any other line of work, you can kind of put it this way: like if you if you if you were in like a high flying office based job, right, where you were, I don't know, maybe even as high as like an assistant director or something like that. Maybe not the big boss, but somewhere up in the senior management team. There's pressure on you, of course there is, and there's a level of responsibility with being that senior, of course there is. But you can turn up to work and just be a bit off. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're, you can you can actually go in and say, you know what? Don't piss me off today because you know I I I just don't feel right, or you know I'm in a bad mood. I've got my period, or you know I've got. I I was playing football yesterday. Now I'm achy, or you know, um, I'm having grief with with my wife or my husband. You know, you can go in and just be like, just give me some space because I'm in a bad mood. In my job, that's just never an option. Like every night, you've got to be Mister Saturday Night, and it like if you're a little bit off, and people are a bit like, ah, oh, what's his problem? Do yeah, you know that, why do, isn't he the happiest man in the world? Does that beat you down? I mean. When you see people and you're not as uh, energetic as you appear on TV, and, mm. and 
you know, what are some of the conversations you've had with people or even your internal dialogue, you know? Yeah, I mean, my internal dialogue is possibly worse because, you know, I'm, I'm always second-guessing myself. But in terms of, like, like just publicly and, and having conversations with other people, I think the the weird thing for for me is I... Obviously, I got that pressure to be like the, the 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 coolest guy or the happiest guy or the funniest guy or whatever. But I, I've developed something in as I've matured, uh, wherein I put a lot of my genuine feeling into my stand up, you know, into the comedy that I create, so that it's not all you know um, moonbeams and, and candy bars and rainbows, you know. Like there's there's an edge to it that is real, and um, that helps in a lot of ways because um, people sort of get that I'm not like Jimmy Carr. You know, you look at someone like Jimmy, you don't know who Jimmy Carr is. You'll never know. Do you know what I'm saying? I know, but you'll never know because he will only ever sell you these jokes that are meticulously. Um, created and delivered and he's amazing at it he really is one of the best but you don't know anything about Jimmy Carr Talk, talking about that I mean Ricky Gervais strikes me as someone who when you talk to him he, he, he just got a beaming grin on his face or at least that's his public perception mm. uh, constantly cracking jokes and that kind of stuff you've spent more time with him than anybody else mm. two things I was really curious to know firstly what is his creative process like mm-hmm. uh, and also you know, you obviously he's your friend, so you don't necessarily have to disclose. But is is there more to him than than just the happy Ricky as well? Is, does he have his his down days? Well, yeah, of course. You know, you're you're right to say I, w- I would never betray his trust because he is a friend of mine and and has you know we've been friends for five years now, and it's 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 mad how much we've done together in in that period of time. Um, but I guess the safest way to put it is that he's like anybody else. He has his ups and downs, you know, and he is someone who is, I would say, almost relentlessly positive about, uh, like, in terms of his outlook on um, where he's trying to go with his career and and also in terms of the the people that he loves, you know, he keeps them keeps them very close and he's very open with them, you know, the... The last time we had a beer together, which was probably um, five or six nights into the the run at the Hammersmith Apollo, so very very recently, the start of this month, um, October. Um, you know, I'm in the the VIP bar with him and a few of my friends and family, and his he had like twelve people with him, and they were all members of his family, all of them. Do you know what I mean? There was no flipping, like, people will probably think, oh, there's going to be, you know, Robert De Niro or whoever <laughs> big stars in London at that point is going to be there. No, it's his family. And um, I sat down and I had a drink with all of them. And uh, he's very much like, Ricky's one of those dudes who he gets it. He understands the fame game. He understands the way it works. He doesn't desire fame in any way. He also understands that, his success might mean that he loses people that are close to him from before the success and he refuses for that to be uh, a a thing that he's going to fall victim to. Um, 
he's not a petty man, whereas a lot of people at his level become petty about things. You know, the 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 weird things that they demand to be a part of their lives. You think you've you lost touch, mate. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, I was watching James Corden doing uh, jokes about Harvey Weinstein um, in LA, and I just thought this is a perfect example of somebody who's lost touch with reality. Because if you genuinely think you're important enough to make those jokes to people who are actually from LA, by the way, some of them probably know the accused. Somebody, some people might know some uh, 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 accusers, victims, you know. And you think that you're a big enough guy, smart enough guy to just go, oh, here's my take on it and just belittle it like that. No, you've you've crossed over a line of arrogance. And people might listen to this and think, how can you be saying that, that Ricky Gervais is not arrogant? I'm saying it. Like he, That's part of the persona that he brings to the stage. We all need a certain level of ego in order to be entertainers. But one thing I could never level at him, knowing him personally as I have for five years, is him being an arrogant guy. He's self-assured, no question. He believes in his own ability but arrogance is not one of the things that I would accredit to him. And like I say, people might think that's strange because a lot of his jokes are so kind of right on the edge um, of being like maybe offensive or, um, you know, uh, rubbing people up the wrong way. But I guarantee you this, he thinks about the science behind every single word in a way that I don't. Like, I, I just say how I feel, you know. And sometimes it's funny and sometimes it isn't. Ricky's like, no, I'm going to say how I feel, but it needs to be constructed into a perfect joke that's worthy of the great joke writers of, of his youth, you know, the great, great writers of the 50s and 60s and 70s. He's like, it has to be on that level, has to represent what I truly believe, and it has to be able to be defensible because he knows that someone's going to kick off with him. He knows. And when they do, he's ready. And that, for me can't be described as arrogance that has to be described as having the right amount of humility about your work to realize that it might hurt someone and if it does you can defend yourself and the work that's, that's very thoughtful yeah and that's an he's a real intellectual man i was gonna say that's an incredible insight into someone that so many people of oftentimes don't get to see behind that iron curtain. Yeah, it's easy to just go, oh, Ricky Gervais, I hate his opinion on disabled people. And like, well, hold on, what what's that based on? Yeah, A joke from when? Okay, let's break down that joke. Do you know what I'm saying? Of all the people that you've met, I mean, you've met an absolute ton of people and obviously you've been in the industry now, so you would have met um, a, a whole, whole uh, host of people, but also your family are very talented. I just wondered if you could maybe share three people that come to mind that you just think are exceptional individuals and what it is about them in particular that you think makes them exceptional? Wow, I mean, from from show business, from, from entertainment business. It could be from anywhere. Just, uh, you know, like, there's some, thing about, there's some things about some people that just makes them, mm. everyone gravitate towards them yeah. and you go, do you know what, there's qualities of that individual that, that I'd love to possess myself. Um, well, that's a good question, man. Um... Jeez, I met you know I met and became friends with Carl Frutch, the boxer, and there was something about him that I really, really warmed to immediately. There was uh, there was a humility, there was a quietness, 
there was a gentleness that obviously betrayed the fact that he could kill a man with his bare hands. You know, an incredibly uh, efficient fighter uh, over the years with an unbelievable record. And yet when I met him, I just thought this is such a humble, sort of just funny, sweet, gentle guy. Um, And I was very impressed by the way he just quietly became a legend do you know what i'm saying like it just it's just like this is what i enjoy doing it doing i don't need to talk it up that much and you could tell he wasn't like you know he wasn't like the king of the trash talk either do you know what i'm saying it just super, wasn't really his super style humility kind you of can thing. just keep talking the trash and he'll just knock you out <laughs> you know there was something about that i found super super impressive he's definitely one um i would say my sister zadie you know it's it's an, an unbelievable privilege to see someone from 2 years old to being uh you know a global phenomenon to see how that can happen and develop and the person not become a dick like i th- i think that is just an invaluable um experience to have grown up with and and, and seen and experienced firsthand just um, just for people that are listening who might not be familiar, so your sister is, you know, multi-millions of books sold or whatever. Mm-hmm. She's, yeah, a, a huge writer, Zadie Smith. Mm. Um, yeah. And, you know, she taught me that y- your ideas can touch the world. And whatever your uh, profession is, you know, those of us who have a desire to if not be the best to be considered as one of the the most um effective most prominent in their area of expertise purely just because of the sake of professional pride um those of us who want that from our lives uh, our working lives it was such a great model for that because you know you know, every other day I would walk into my mum's my house and there'd be her first book, White Teeth, translated copies of it in, in, in 40, 50 languages, you know, all on one shelf. <laughs> and that that just metaphorically has a, a huge impact on a, on a youngster. And, um, yeah, I, did, I can't really put a price on that. She also told me that the strongest uh, response you can have in show business is no. Um, and that was a, that was a huge lesson which I didn't learn until I was uh, you know getting into stand up and, and realized how many people wanted to take advantage of me. And when you look at it in the light of all the the the, the sexual harassment stuff that's coming out now within uh, our world, it, it sort of takes on an even darker sort of macabre twist, um, but it's still just as important a, a statement to remember. Awesome. There was three, wasn't there? There was three. <laughs> I just we, we, I throw, we can I throw in Tom two. Hanks on the as the third. <laughs> yeah, because I only met I only met him the once, but it was uh, it was a very memorable meeting. Awesome. Yeah, he's 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 in short, he's everything that you'd hope Tom Hanks <laughs> would be. <laughs> and his son's a rapper, right? I hear he's been kicking. Really, up that's not a son I've come across. Because I I was watching Fargo and I I remember thinking why do I love the hero of Fargo so much I can't the TV series uh, series two I was thinking why do I love this guy so much I can't work it out he's just so lovable 
I just immediately want the best for him. <laughs> and then I checked his name on, uh, you know, Wikipedia or whatever, and it's Colin Hanks. And I was like, no, it can't be. <laughs> can't be Hanks' son. And it's, there, sure enough, it is. He's got, he's got an equally, equally lovable son. But I know he's got another son, so maybe that's the rapper. I can't believe Colin Hanks raps. <laughs> Colin Hanks raps, I will eat my hat. Uh, we can look into it afterwards. Yeah, I'd love to know. In the final segment of the interview, I wanted to talk to Ben about issues outside of his career and try and dig deep to uncover his philosophical approaches to life and how having success has affected him. Off screen, Ben has been a huge advocate of both diversity and equality and as the face of a number of initiatives, I thought it would be a great opportunity to pose some questions to him that both I and many others have about how to tackle diversity in the workforce as well as how to approach gender equality. There's a quote I found in one of your interviews that I, I absolutely love. You said that what you had was true privilege, encouragement. And I just wondered if you could expand upon that a little bit. Well, um, yeah. You know, people often have that assumption. They say, oh, you know, um, you and Zadie are from a working class background. So obviously you, you, were, you, know, you grew up without um, the privilege of certain other uh, people in your, in your field. I think well that's that depends on how you describe privilege because I feel like I had all the privileges because I had two parents who would do anything for my happiness do you know what I'm saying uh, which is the way I raise my kids you know you try not to spoil them but at the same time you you'd give up everything you had for them it's just a new level of love that you've not experienced until you've had children and my parents recognized that and and uh they made us the center of their world and that is an unbelievable privilege to kick off with because i've met people who grew up with everything in terms of um wealth and and beautiful surroundings and and stuff and i've i know people as well who grew up with none of that uh and the thing that unites both of these sets of people is that their parents didn't really give them the time of day and they end up being dicks, you know? Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. So that that was one of the first things to make me think, well, money or no money, that's kind of irrelevant. It's more about what you got when you were at your most vulnerable, when, when you really, really needed love and support and positivity. Was it there or not? And I think if it wasn't there it's a struggle it's a struggle from there on in and and some really strong people can turn even that to their advantage but i think it's a much harder slog i never had to do that i never had to go well my parents never gave a shit about me so now i've got to try and make the world give a shit about me i never had to have that conversation with myself and neither did zadie because we were raised to believe we could do anything and we instead went in with armed with that so you know People say, oh, you know, Ben's like the polymath, he can do this, this and this. I actually don't feel like I'm doing enough. I feel like I'm doing things that are all kind of transferable skills. You know, I rap, I write, I act. You know, what parts of those aren't interchangeable? You know, when I'm rapping, I'm acting and writing, right? When I'm when I'm writing, I'm using the wordplay that I would have from rap and I'm thinking about how... Uh, an actor would say these words but for, from a creative perspective uh, so that's it's all interchangeable it's you know that's the insight is that 
you can cross translate these skills and, yeah, and, and transferable use. skills you know people act as if I, I do like figure skating and pole vaulting I, I can't <laughs> do that shit do you know what I'm saying I, I, I actually stay very specifically within the lanes that I feel I could transfer my skills to and I do it with the belief that was instilled in me from my parents one thing you do do is you you're a kind of a face for a number of causes and I've got so many questions I'd love to ask you about mm. that but I'll start off just by talking about London itself. So okay. I'm, I'm originally from uh, North Devon right. and I moved here and it's it's known as a cultural melting pot, which mm. it is to some degree, but mm. you also find that there's a lot of silos yeah. of, of groups of in, uh, like different kind of tribes, effectively, of different types of people that like to hang out together. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing which is obviously hugely beneficial is when people mingle and cultures mm-hmm. clash. How, in your experience, do you know how to, how people have come together, or what what do you think of that situation? And do you think there's a way that people can start to to mingle more? Well, first and foremost, I think if you're talking about mingling, we're unbeatable. There's nowhere like this in the world, and I've been fortunate enough to have travelled the world a few times over, and I've been to some of the cities that claim to be these kind of cultural melting pots. And there's there's nowhere there's nowhere like London. Because, you know, even, you know, the most famed melting pot, New York, actually people live separately. They, you don't see a mixing of uh, heritage along racial lines like you do in London. In London, you know, you look at a generation of, of kids, you look at a, a class um, in 2017 of children aged five years old and it even blows your idea of your concept of mixed race out of the water. Because when I was a kid, the concept of mixed race was like, oh, he's got a white parent and a black parent. You pull out a, a class of five-year-olds from 2017 out of London, you're going to learn something completely new about the concept of mixed heritage. Because you're going to have kids that are like half Turkish, half Chinese. Do you know what I mean? Because there's generations of immigrants now in London that have lived cheek by jowl for for a while you know and and uh we just get on with it man like we actually genuinely genuinely mix and in new york obviously they mix but i think it's more like they mix because they have to at work when they go home they're not going home to a, a house full of different races we actually have homes residential homes full of people from different backgrounds one thing, this is a little bit of a tangent, but there's certain people that I get on particularly well with who one characteristic they have, which I just find extremely admirable, is that they self-deprecate. Mm-hmm. And I find that it it makes having conversations a lot easier and so where we can kind of tease each other about it. So I'll have gay friends who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we can have a joke about that. Or um, the other day I was doing a workshop and there's... I was reading the description of the two people. One of them was saying that uh, she they should have been the extras on Spice Girls. One of them should have been Asian Spice and Fat Spice. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, this girl was really big, and maybe that would be something that you would avoid talking about or encroaching mm-hmm. upon. But because she was like, "Yeah, I want to be Fat Spice," and she owned it. She owned it, and mm-hmm. it made it uh, something that we could then talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think people are too serious in general with regards to? themselves and their positions because a lot of people are so defensive um 
And do you think that that would would be uh, something that could aid people in chatting more or not? Yeah, really? I mean, I think that's one of the beauties of comedy. You know, I think if you pick yourself as a target, I think you can. It's amazing that you can talk. You can almost talk about anything. I've got to a point now where I feel so confident in the fact that I'm a, a cultural kind of chameleon myself. I feel like I can touch upon. A number of topics. I don't get too deep into ones that I know don't affect me firsthand. I'm not going to do an hour on what it's like to, what it feels like to be a woman, because I don't know. But I will definitely make some points about where I stand on it, and I'll be bold about it. And you know, if people want to judge me, just like Ricky, I'll, I'll I'll be ready to defend myself. You know, because I've not had a singular. Uh, upbringing i've not had a, i've not been a part of a singular cultural experience uh, on a personal level and i'm not going to cast any aspersions over north devon in fact it's a place that i've visited many times especially in my youth and it's beautiful but i would say that if you grow up in north devon you're forced to have something of a singular experience at least for a portion of your childhood before you have the freedom to go, actually, I want to see what's going on in South Devon. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or you want to just branch out a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I'm not saying that gives me an authority over you in any way. I'm just saying it probably gives me the confidence to just air certain things out because I think, well, you know what? I'm going to talk about um, women's opinion on this particular subject because I've just... <laughs> I've just spent uh, two months talking to women that I consider my friends about it. So I feel like I've got something to say. Do you know what I'm saying? And I don't think you should be afraid of that. What you should be afraid of is your own bigotry about things. You should be afraid of your own prejudice because um, a lot, most people I don't think are. Most people don't even realise that they've, they've got a prejudice about other people. They don't realise it because they've never had to confront it. And that's what that's what should scare you, because sometimes every now and again, there's a contentious subject that is worldwide that calls into account your own prejudice. And on that day, you have to face the ultimate demon, which is yourself. I to your point, like I love or don't lo it's not about loving it, but I, I think it's important to debate these subjects and to, to have open conversations because it helps to educate and inform yourself on these topics. One thing that you've done is you're part of uh, Great Men, which looks to teach young boys about the negative effects of gender stereotyping. And I just, as someone, as you said, it's just spent years talking to women and getting their, their perspective on some things. I wanted to throw out a couple of uh, scenarios, things which I've, the reoccurring themes in debates I've had about this and just okay. to, interested to get your thoughts on it. So the first one was... Uh, the objectification debate and specifically this is something where I often get confused it's where say uh, music videos are a perfect example for mm -hmm. me where you might look at them and say it's an objectification of, of the woman that's on there especially if they're scantily clad mm -hmm. but then if you were to speak to the woman they would say that they're empowered and that they're doing it for their own reasons mm -hmm. and it seems like there's a bit of an oxymoron in that circumstance where some women have different stances on it. Mm -hmm. So that was the first one. Uh, an issue that comes up repeatedly is pay in sports. And uh, one thing which 
basically football or anything in the world kind of your worth is in in some way determined by how many people engage with what it is you do yeah um and so it's an interesting debate there as to whether it's it's people holding them back or whether it's just we need to engage more people in watching or actively watching um third one was women that uh, don't want to buy into the to the feminism thing so i'll use my partner as a as an example she's extremely girly very proud to be girly um that isn't so worried about the fact that say i earn more than her or or any of those kind of issues and, and in some way feels pressured by um the the, the feminist movement and on that the fi- final one is people who i've got a friend of mine called Mel- melanie mercer and she's just super hardcore like she'd take any <laughs> any guy um down in in just so many subjects especially business and entrepreneurship oh, nice. but she she doesn't want to be the face of any because she just wants to say do you know what i'm doing this yeah regardless and i totally understand her standpoint and yeah. I, I feel like i'd get on with her because i hate it when people go oh my god you know, this thing's going on in the black community. Ben, what's what's your take on it? Like, mate, wh- who are they? Like, just because just they're black, it doesn't mean, like, I've got... I can speak for them. Yeah. I can speak for myself as a black person. So I can speak for myself and my experiences related specifically to being black. Yeah. But I can't speak for black people I don't know. I need to know a lot more about them and what they're going through. And it's exactly the same with... Um, with the 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 question of uh, of, of sexism and 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 uh, the current uh, struggle that's going on for in terms of in terms of feminism, like I can't speak for women, but um, I can say my like I f- can say my opinion on it, and I can feel like it's valid because it's my honest opinion. Whether women want to take it on board, agree with it, use it, poo poo it, it's completely up to them. That's the beauty of free speech. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I mean, you've you, you've essentially asked three different questions, uh, yeah, which they're, could they're be different. you know an hour long debate <laughs> on each. Yeah. Um, but to try and touch upon the the, the first one um, in terms of uh, you know objectification uh, of women, that thing has been happening since the dawn of the time, and since we've gone into the world of multimedia and this whole kind of uh, technological revolution that we've been experiencing for the past 20 years, you know, women have been, in a lot of ways, huge victims of it because we've been able to promote stereotypes about women in a way that we never have been able to do so effectively before. Um, And uh, there's so many elements to that. But you've picked up on one that's quite interesting, which is wherein when women are in charge of that image... Uh, how do we judge whether it's objectifying or not? Because a woman's in charge of it. You say the same thing about rap. If there's a black guy saying nigga, 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 and 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 throwing in like the kind of stereotypes that we've been fighting against, like oh, you know, I'm involved in crime, or you know, I smoke weed, or blah blah blah. If you're hearing that in a rap song, but it's by a black guy, is that fine? Am I am I cool to just rap along with that, or is there an issue? You know, um, so before objectification, we have to talk about ownership and that's like a whole other subject. But to try and simplify it, I would say when it comes down to 
is like uh you know the 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 wrecking ball video for example is that like there was a big argument over that anaconda uh by Nicki minaj big argument over that are they objectifying or is that a reclaiming of femininity i think there's there's no way of there's no like easy answer but one rule that i like to stick to is is there any weight in it like the actual product is there anything to it is there something cool going on is there something interesting is there something intelligent and if there isn't i think a lot of the time not saying like guaranteed every time but i think if there isn't a lot of the time uh i'm just reclaiming my femininity is an attempt to give it some depth that it doesn't fucking have there's no depth to anaconda by Nicki minaj all right there's no depth to wrecking ball that those those songs are just you know they're basic right whereas there's other songs where a woman might be scantily clad but at the same time the what she's talking about and what's going on in the video and i've seen rihanna do this a couple of times she's also guilty of the other thing sometimes but um you know i've seen a couple of times where she's definitely there's no question she's playing with her sexuality as part of a point that she's trying to make I'm, I would love a woman to get in touch with me and tell me what the deep point that Nicki Minaj is trying to make with Anaconda. I'd love, love to hear it. But I'm just saying, like, it's very similar with, like, offensive jokes. Like, if you've got an offensive joke um, and it's really funny and it makes you think, that's probably why it's not just solely offensive. If If the joke is said and literally it just hurts... And you come out and say it every night and say it's about disabled people. And then one night you come out and there's disabled people in the front row and you choose not to do the joke. Then you just learn yourself that the joke was offensive because you didn't think about it that deep until you were faced with it. And I think it's it's, it's similar in, in, in that world of objectification within multimedia. You know, like if a woman does it, is it fine? Well, let's ask the woman who made it, like, honestly, all cameras off, what's the mean, what was the meaning behind it? Did, did, honestly. On, on that, just very, very quickly, because uh, I've listened in one of your videos with regards to topless women, and I know that there's a kind of another debate within, within the feminist movement, which is kind of men are allowed to be topless. Uh, yeah. in kind of any scenario. Yeah, I don't, I, that's, that's another thing I just don't subscribe to because it's just no comparison. Well, a man you, being topless and a woman being topless is just completely different things. Because men are... Because a man's breasts are not sexualized, so it's just not a comparison. Yeah. A woman's breasts are sexualized. So a woman with a top of a man with a top of... It's one of the things that makes my blood boil. It goes, oh, well, what about this picture with this man with his top? No one gives a shit. It's a yeah. man. It, a man's chest is not a sexualized thing. I'm sorry. Like, it might be. Yeah. For, like, for, 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 for some people, the opposite sex, they might go, oh, my God, I can't believe that man's got his chest out. Yeah. But I think that I think it's safe to say that, that it doesn't have the same but is, contention to it. Is that not the point? As a woman's chest. That if you... Exp- There's some countries in the world where people just naked quite a lot. Like uh, I know the Nordic countries that, uh, you know, people have naked saunas. And, yeah, I've uh, seen adverts for shampoo in France where the woman's just topless. Yeah. But I mean, what, so like um, in some respect, in some countries... 
it's you're so overexposed to it that it removes that sexualization mm. and it's really over here it's the fact that we don't get to see women topless uh, that aren't being overly sexualized that it, we are still overly attract well not overly attracted but just <laughs> extremely attracted to it perhaps so, i mean because it's a good point i mean perhaps we still got a problem with the no sex we're british kind of vibe where where we're prudish about this kind of stuff but um you know i mean I, I was i was in france over the summer and uh, yeah at, like every beach i went to that women were topless it just wasn't an issue um, and the only people staring were definitely British tourists. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like, it's one of those things, like, it's it's just wading into an amazing amount of hot soup, even me talking about it. And I tried to address the controversy of it with the no more page free thing, because I like nothing more than looking at a woman's breasts. I mean, it's, it's, it just <laughs> makes my day. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I don't class myself as like some sexual harasser or some some uh some dude who's constantly perving after after women i'm talking about aesthetically if you're going to show me a picture of a woman topless i'm probably going to enjoy it i'm probably going to enjoy that picture and the point i was trying to make with no more page 3 is like there's a time and a place do you know what i'm saying like if you were to put out a picture now i'd be like right i don't really know you like that and i don't know who else is is sat in this room it's inappropriate yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? That's the way I felt about um, page three and, and, and the daily sport. I just think if this is on the low levels in the newsagent, I'm walking in with my kids every day, that's an inappropriate place for breasts to be. That does not mean that I can't wait until my kids have gone to bed and then at 10 o'clock I can look <laughs> at an image of breasts. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Because that's, that, you know, that is a decision that I'm making in private with a consenting adult. Sure. E.g. myself. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So I, like, I feel like there's a time and a place. And then also you've got to talk about what the nature of that image is. If if my thing was, oh, I don't just like to look at women's breasts. I like to look at a woman being subdued and forced to expose her breasts. That's not a turn on for me. That's quite, I find that quite disturbing. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? So, you know, the idea of contention is actually... It's a deep one and objectification is a deep one because on the surface we're talking about music videos with with Rihanna or, or, or Nicki Minaj. But deep down we're talking about like the dark side of things. Like what 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 are people consuming uh that have women at the centre and are those women empowered by what they do or are they enforced to do it? And that changes our uh enjoyment levels tenfold i know we've gone to a, a relatively dark place and yeah. i, I want to go one step further before i jump into the, <laughs> before i jump onto the quick fires and it was a story and i, I don't remember the full details but okay. you, you were saying that you were angry at some person and that um it was less so that you were actually angry with that individual but it was more that the ultimate fear of the fear of death that you that you think sparked that anger in you um and I just wondered, like, as somebody that's been through all this uh, huge amounts of success and, mm -hmm. and a roller coaster ride in terms of your career, when you, uh, it's it's nice to to hear from from your mouth, like what it's like when you go through that and you're going to bed at night. Like, what do you think to yourself? Do you still do you feel like you put good out in the world and that you can go peacefully, or do you still think about your uh, the mortality. fact that you're just yeah your mortality? Yeah, that's a good way. Of I can't live with myself if I feel like I've done something 
wrong to somebody. That must be down to the, the way I was raised. I must have been taught, you know, the reason you're feeling guilty is because you you did something wrong and you're not going to feel better until you sort it out. I must have been raised that way because I still feel that way now. I feel terrible if I, you know, maybe I slighted someone or I was a bit rude when I met him. Maybe I was drunk or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Or like my tone was wrong or maybe I was just just plain rude. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, if I get pulled up on it and I didn't realise, I just feel like such a dick and I've got to sort it out. So I would say I apply that to, to everything I do. I, I'm not, I know a lot of people like, oh, you know, only a boring artist would constantly curry favour. I don't think I do it as an artist. I think I do it as a human being. I think I, I want to... I don't just want to be liked. I think everybody wants to be liked. Some people might see that as shallow. Um, I I want to be liked for the right reasons. Do you know what I'm saying? I want to I want to go to sleep every day and think, oh, you know what? Like I was a good person today. Like I did some good stuff. You know, and I'm gonna keep trying to do the same tomorrow. And um, I suppose the irony of that is I'm never that good to myself. I try my best with other people. But I don't really try it with my, myself. Um, I just uh I put I put a lot of energy like outwards. Uh, I don't put a lot like inwards. I don't really know what the answer to that is cuz I'm not really a navel gazer kind of guy. I don't like to overly assess every tiny little decision that I do. I just know that when you do something good, you feel great, and when you do something bad, you feel terrible. And if you don't feel either of those things, you're potentially a sociopath or even worse, a psychopath. <laughs> so I just think, yeah, let me just stay in that zone and I'll work out my own insecurities as and when. As long as they're not making me suicidal or make me treat people like shit, then I think, yeah, I'm all right. I'm just sort of steadily going through life. But when it comes in to down to mortality, yeah, I don't... I'd rather not die now, but I don't, I don't fear death, I, you know. If it happened now, I'd be gutted, but mainly because my kids are only 11 and 8. If it happened and they were adults, like young adults even, you know, in their 20s, I'd be okay with it. I'll be honest with you. I'd be gutted that I didn't get to meet their kids and whatnot. But you know what? Like I look at, I look at life and I just think it is so fragile. Like the amount of times I've flicked an ant off of my arm Right, and I've seen it fly across the room and smack into a wall, and then drop on the floor, and then they just go, just shake it off and walk off. It's like the equivalent of a wrecking ball hitting a human being, smacking into a side of a building, then you falling off the building onto the street. You're a pancake. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, like human beings are rubbish. Like animals and insects are so much better built than us. And yet we just think, oh, we should live forever. Like, oh, I, I can't, I'm so angry that I've got cancer. This is outrageous. So, hey, nah, man, like we're, we're not that strong. And any, any shit could take us out at any minute. So I look at it like, you know, my, my dad was 18 years old fighting for the 79th Armour Division on the beaches of Normandy in the Second World War. And he survived. And somehow... He survived all the way to 52, to to when I was born. But then he just, you know, spent the whole time as an old father worrying that he wouldn't be alive to see me become an adult. 
and that was a constant fear for him. I never wanted to live that way, which is why I had children relatively young. I just thought, you know what? I drink, I smoke, I do drugs. There's a chance I could die young. <laughs> I don't do exercise, do you know what I mean? <laughs> There's a chance I could die young. So I just think, you know, have kids young and then at least <laughs> if you do if you do die in your late 40s, your kids are, are, are adults and uh, and you've already given them the stepping stones to to move on and they'll probably do some cool shit in your memory. Well, well uh, <laughs> that's a good way to end the questions. We'll move on to the quick fires. Um, favourite film or documentary? Well, I mean, that's it's a ridiculous question. Um, <laughs> I, you know, the idea of favourite pieces of art is is just nonsensical. But um, I'd say there's a number of films and documentaries that I would highly recommend to people. I would never pick uh, one out of any of them. But in terms of documentaries, I'd say um, this, the 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 uh, the OJ story of America that just came out um, and won the Oscar um, at the last Oscars is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life. But then at the same time, I would put that uh, like uh, alongside the Jinx, which is an HBO six-parter um, documentary, and uh, also in terms of feature-length docs, Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis, I think is kind of a must-watch if you feel that there might be meaning behind um, life or if you're just one of those people who just thinks, ah, shit just happens. Um, it's a very powerful film. Um, those are probably my three f- favourite docs at the moment. In terms of movies, I mean, it's just <laughs> just ridiculous. I recently saw Jaws again in, in its entirety on a big screen and that is definitely up there with my favourite films of all time. Just fantastic in every way. Incredible performances, unbelievable scripts, so real, so believable, which is not a thing that people tend to say about Jaws because they always think about the plastic, big plastic shark. But he doesn't really feature. He's, like, he's in really at the very end. What is in it most of the time is unbelievable performances from... Uh, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss and um, Roy Schneider and it's just that's a, that's a special movie for me um, A book or learning resource that you recommend to people? Uh, I know that there's lots out there but even if you just yeah, have, even I mean, just off the top of your head There's so many great works out there in, in terms of books um, Trying to think of like maybe just the most recent books that I've really enjoyed. I mean, if you're if you're a Londoner, a great learning resource is London: The Biography by Peter Ackroyd. It's just an incredible, a very long volume on the, the sort of history of of London, and it is one of the most fascinating cities and one, and one of the most fascinating reads that's out there. Um, in terms of fiction, I very much enjoyed. Uh, um, Patrick DeWitt's book, oh shit, now what's it called? <laughs> oh, The Sisters Brothers, um, which is a uh, kind of adventure yarn about two guys in during the time of the gold rush in, in, in California, so, you know, about 200 years ago. Um, it's just about two guys who are trying to get out of the... Uh, killing game they kill for money they're hitmen they're brothers 
Um, that is one of the great sort of adventure yarns mixed with philosophy and dark comedy that I've think I've ever read. I'm amazed it's not a movie. It's one of those. <laughs> uh, final question on the quick fires: uh, a lesser known comedian that we should check out. Oh man! I mean, when I was on the circuit about six, seven years ago, I would have reeled off a whole bunch of them. But a lot of those are household names now. I mean, the guys that you're seeing on telly now, like really, like exploding, are all the guys that I came up with. You know, Joe Lysit, Catherine Ryan, Romesh, uh, Ranganathan, um, Joel Domit, uh, Nish Kumar. All of these guys. These are the guys that I was gig, you know, doing the shit gigs with that we've <laughs> already <laughs> discussed. But in terms of like the ones that people probably don't know yet that they should know i'd say probably reese james ivo graham jamali maddox um mo gilligan's just starting to get well known um his vines are, are absolutely huge um online um yeah uh that's, that's, yeah that's a couple black guys a couple white guys let me think of a couple girls <laughs> <laughs> sophie hagan um very very good um yeah, you know, there's always talent. May Martin's about to be huge. Most some people probably know who she is. Just hearing me say that name, but she's about to blow. Uh, that's, that's probably my next big tip. Amazing. <laughs> um, before I ask you the final question and reveal how people can get hold of you, mm. I'm going to pass the show over to our producer Adam, who's going to share some of the actionable insights from today's interview. Well, thanks for joining us today, Ben, and thank you for the wealth of insight you shared with us. Here's the five actionable insights that I wrote down as you were talking. Number one, take confidence from the fact that your favourite rapper didn't arrive fully formed. They definitely learned what they do from the previous generation. Number two, if you want to be an entertainer, you have to be on every time. You can't ask for understanding. You can, however, put yourself and your emotion into what you do. Number three, if you're making work with the potential to offend, then you have to be prepared to defend what you do. Number four. The strongest response that you can have, particularly in showbiz, is no. And number five, don't live with fear. We as humans are fragile, so just accept that the worst can happen. Thank you, Adam. Some really great insights there. So to sum up, before I ask you the final question, uh, where can people get hold of you or reach reach you at least? And uh, do you have any asks for the audience? Um, well, I suppose, you know, I'm, I don't... I don't uh... I don't have like a not on Facebook. I've never been on Facebook, but there is like um like an uh, like a sort of an official Doc Brown page on there that compiles the stuff that I do do online, which is either via my website docbrown.co.uk or on Twitter or Instagram. I love Twitter and Instagram. I mean, I love Instagram the most because it's the friendliest place. Twitter's quite an un- unfriendly atmosphere at times. Um I'm not really enjoying Twitter as we speak, but only because I tweeted something that for the first time went like properly global, viral. I've never, that's never happened to me before. <laughs> and you know, there's a part of you on Twitter where you think, ah, oh, I'd quite like one of my little witticisms to, to blow up, to blow up, but you actually don't. And this is not a humble brag. Like it happened to me yesterday. I tweeted something and it's been so heavily retweeted and liked that I can't, I can barely use Twitter. Like I, I get on it, it's just like a million notifications, one after the other, after the other, after the other. It just ruins the whole experience. 
So I just hang out on Instagram. <laughs> but yeah, if if people did want to get in, in touch, like direct, like Twitter and Instagram, it's, it's actually me. Like it's not some like PR machine. I'm I'm not really that guy. <laughs> um, the final question. It's a, a bit of a deeper one, but if you had the opportunity to give the world one piece of advice to live a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? I would say enjoy it. You know. It was one piece of advice I got when I was starting out in comedy from an older comic, very successful comic, been on telly and stuff. And I was so nervous and he said, hey, he looked at me and said, hey, before I went out, enjoy it. I just thought, that's the shittest advice I've ever had. How can you say that to me when you can't you see how nervous I am? But as I've got older, I've realised that's not just great advice for for your work, it's just great advice, man. Like... There's no, I'm really sorry for those religious people out there. I don't believe in an afterlife. I believe in this life. I think we've got one stab at it. And, uh, you know, even if you do believe in an afterlife, there's no reason to just go, oh, just have a shit life now because the afterlife would probably be amazing. It's just not a guarantee, is it? So I think, you know, from the, in the most selfish of senses, enjoy what you've got like enjoy it and i i i know that's easy for me to say because i'm i'm living my dream but believe me i was the same dude before i, I got into this i tried to enjoy as much as my life as i could um but i also mean it in a selfless sense because before i got into show business i didn't i never made a living as a rapper i rapped for a hobby you know i was i was a youth worker by day i worked with kids uh, i did that for 10 years and um I just enjoyed it, man. And like kids just so untouched by all the emotional baggage and bullshit that adults have got that they are amazing people to be around. They're like the best sort of life coaches that you can have because that's all they do. They just enjoy life in the moment. And if you open your eyes, it's a great lesson. And like I said earlier in the interview, you know, you feel it if you're not a sociopath when you do bad things comes back and you just feel bad and do good things it comes back and you feel great so enjoy it enjoy your own uh experiences and decisions but also enjoy the interaction of other human beings because we can keep plugging ourselves into shit and pretending that no one else exists but all we're doing when we plug in you know and we go online is try and connect with other human beings it's like the it's the greatest irony that I see of the modern age. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. <laughs> Get my earphones on. Got my phone on. Oh, leave me alone. Bloody human beings. And what are you doing? You're just trying to connect. You're on Twitter. You're on Instagram. You're social media. You're just seeing on the news. You're just seeing what other human beings are doing. Because deep down, your instinct's telling you to connect. And when you do have a moment with another human being and it's positive, it feels incredible. Whether that's just the fact that you dropped your, your wallet and because you were listening to music you didn't hear and someone chased you all the way up the street until they found you and gave you your wallet back. Or whether that's, you know, incredible sex with somebody or like an, an amazingly profound moment with, with somebody you've known all your life. The interactions are the things that we can't buy, you know? I, I think that's a fitting way to end and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me Mailing List. 
If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. Hold up. 